Let's pray real quick. Father, may your spirit uh, work in these moments as we look into the Noahic Covenant, into your word, God. Speak to us and allow us to interpret it rightly and to apply it to our lives. We love you, God, and thank you for working in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Meryl Streep is a superstar nominated for a record 21 Academy Awards. She's won three of them. She's been married to her husband for almost 40 years. They have four children. Meryl Streep is tremendously blessed by God, and yet she openly rejects God and religion. Andy Rooney, the radio and television writer, is probably best known for uh, 60 Minutes and his role there. He had a successful and distinguished career. He was married to his wife for 62 years had four children. Andy Rooney was tremendously blessed by God, yet Rooney was an atheist and mocked God and organized religion. He said, I don't understand religion at all. I'm sure I'll offend a lot of people by saying this, but I think it's all nonsense. Lots of unbelievers are tremendously blessed in this life. We as believers are tremendously blessed as well. There is so much wickedness in this world, yet God continues to bless while withholding his divine justice. How can all that be? Well, the answer is God's grace, but more precisely, God's common grace. I'll explain that more in a bit. You've likely heard about Noah's Ark, an event that you've probably seen depicted in a puffy little children's Bible as a happy and colorful story, which, which is a little odd because in the story, God's judgment caused widespread death and destruction uh, for the earth, save Noah and his family and a few animals. And that never seems to be part of the kids' books. Uh, but we've all probably heard the story before, but likely without a strong emphasis on law, gospel, messiah. It's possible to know about Noah's impressive ark and all those adorable animals, but have little idea how the event fits within redemptive history, <clears throat> excuse me, and connects to Christ. <clears throat> so I hope to, to deepen your understanding of this event, um, which is a very important historical event. So let's go beyond Genesis 3.15. Everything in the Bible after Genesis 3.15, should be viewed in light of God's covenant gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 4 and 5 confirm what we find in Genesis 1 through 3. Hope, offspring, jealousy, murder, worship, grace, faith in the coming seed, all themes connecting back to Genesis 1 through 3. In Genesis 5, you'll notice the recurring phrase, and he died. Over and over again, and he died, and we know why he died. Don't miss Genesis 5, 29. Lamech, a descendant of Seth, said of his son Noah, out of the ground that the Lord cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech anticipated the one offspring in light of Adam's curse, Could Noah be the deliverer to redeem the earth? Lamech believed the gospel. Noah wasn't it. 
Genesis 6 zeroes in on Noah as the central figure until Genesis 11, which transitions us into Abraham and the inauguration of the covenant of grace. The rest of Genesis, then, is about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Dr. Ligon Duncan said this, It has been well said that Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, is the center point of the promises of the covenant of grace in the history of redemption. Everything before Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is leading up to it. Everything after Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 in the Bible is fulfilling it. Genesis 3.15 is the gospel, but it leads us to the covenant of grace in Genesis 12. Noah is transitioning us from Genesis 3.15 to Genesis 12, from Adam and Eve to Abraham. And the theme is covenant. Covenant. And God's covenant with Noah is gracious. However, as you'll see in in a bit, it doesn't promise eternal life as the covenant of grace does. There's a relation between the Noahic covenant and the covenant of grace, but there's also a big distinction So before we study the Noahic covenant, we should understand something about God's common grace and how it differs from God's saving grace. What is common grace? Common grace is God's undeserved and unmerited kindness and favor given to everyone, believers and unbelievers alike, through earthly blessings. Not spiritual and eternal blessings, but simply earthly and temporal blessings. An atheist enjoys an amazing dinner with their friends. A Hindu enjoys a sunset. A Darwinist enjoys running a successful business. All these pleasures are God's kindnesses enjoyed by believers and unbelievers. None are eternal pleasures. They are common grace, as in they are God's blessings that believers and unbelievers share in common. Jesus said in Matthew 5.45 that God the Father makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Sunrises and rain are pleasures believers and unbelievers enjoy. In Acts 14.17, Paul and Barnabas told pagans in Lystra, God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So understand that rain, harvest, food, satisfaction, and gladness are God's rich blessings that believers and unbelievers enjoy. That's common grace. Saving grace is the undeserved and unmerited kindness and favor of God unto eternal life and the pleasure therein given only to God's chosen people through faith and union with His Son. Unbelievers receive God's common grace. His temporal blessings. But believers receive common and saving grace. His temporal and eternal blessings. Common grace cannot give eternal fellowship with and pleasure in God. Only saving grace can do that. And only believers can enjoy saving grace pleasures. Do you understand the difference between common grace and saving grace? The Noahic covenant is God's common grace. It's a common grace covenant with those who inhabit the earth. That's a lot. God entered into covenant with Noah and all living things and promised to sustain the earth until Christ returned. Brown and Keel write this. The Noahic covenant is the covenant of common grace. 
the realm of our everyday lives under the sun. Its theological significance extends in several directions. It broadcasts how God governs this world in His goodness. It discloses some of man's obligations and roles in the world, and it even points us to Christ. The Noahic covenant is crucial to a biblical understanding of the world and a necessary part of covenant theology, end of quote. See, the covenant of grace promised the arrival of the serpent-crushing seed, and the Noahic covenant promised the preservation of the stage upon which the seed would perform his redemptive work. One devotional put it this way, quote, the Noahic covenant is God's pledge that he will preserve the stability of nature, a stability that will allow his people to flourish and that will provide an arena for him to enter history and bring salvation, end of quote. So in the Noahic covenant, God covenanted to preserve nature, preserve the earth, preserve society so that the serpent slaying seed could come and accomplish redemption for God's people. The Noahic covenant connects back to Genesis 3.15. Think about this. If God would have killed Noah, his family, and every animal, he could not have honored his promise to Adam and Eve. Redemption would have been lost. But God had a sovereign plan of redemption. He had promises to keep. And so from Genesis 3.15 on, we see a faithful, loving Holy God working to achieve his sovereign and eternal plan of redemption, flood included. Let's keep going. I have to move quickly and skip over so many good details, and they're relevant details too. Uh, so, so fill in the gaps with your own study. I cannot do justice to all the text that we have to cover. But Genesis 6. Humanity continued to multiply, and Genesis 6.5 confirms total human depravity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's total depravity. Man's wickedness not only grieved the heart of God, but it provoked his righteous judgment. Genesis 6, 7 states, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Man's wickedness welcomes God's just wrath. But what does verse 8 say? But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Favor means grace. The first place grace is explicitly mentioned in Scripture, though it was clearly and obviously given in Genesis 3. God saved Noah from his sin, and he would save him from the flood as well. Why did Noah receive God's common and saving grace? Well, some look at the text and they suggest that it was because of verse 9, that Noah was a righteous and blameless man. But you see, after the flood was over, Noah got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. Not something a perfectly righteous man does. Noah was righteous in God's sight because the righteousness of God was imputed to him through faith. He was saved by faith alone. Verse 9 says Noah walked with God. And Hebrews eleven seven is critical. And that says this, by faith Noah... 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That is critical. He received the righteousness that comes only by faith. Perfect obedience or law-keeping didn't make Noah righteous. Noah received imputed righteousness and was righteous by faith in the seed. And to say he was blameless in his generation is simply to say that he was a man of grace-induced integrity. Noah received sovereign, electing, and preserving grace. In part because the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 would rise and win. The Noahic covenant contributes to the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. The earth was corrupt and violent, so God promised Noah to pour out his righteous anger and judgment against sin through a worldwide flood. God would kill every breathing, living creature. But God promised a covenant with Noah and his household, a covenant of preservation. God provided shelter from his judgment in the ark. God told Noah in Genesis 6.18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, that's the first place that covenant is used in Scripture. God showed love to Noah and his family by promising to establish a covenant of preservation with Noah. Interestingly, though, the Hebrew for establish suggests there was already a covenant in place. So another way to say verse 18 is, I will make firm or I will confirm the covenant with you. It's no small matter that Noah found favor with God, yet his entire family was included in and benefited from the gracious covenant. Uh, Ligon Duncan noted this, the righteousness of the single head of the family serves as the basis for including the whole of his descendants in the ark. Because Noah is righteous, his entire family experiences deliverance from the flood, end of quote. You see, the text says nothing about the faith of of Noah's family. Nothing. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God, and all his household benefited from him walking with God. Don't miss that. Noah continues this theme of headship and the covenant family, a theme that we see running right on into the New Testament. Now think for a moment about Acts 16 and the Philippian jailer's conversion. Paul and Silas said to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you, to the jailer, you will be saved, you and your household The jailer believed and his entire household was baptized. And Acts 13.34 says this, And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Nothing is said about the members of his household believing. The jailer's faith is emphasized. We we see a light being cast right on the jailer's face, which seems to showcase covenant headship and covenant families. Anyway, back to Noah. Noah trusted God. Noah obeyed God. His household benefited. Genesis 7. The Lord said to Noah in Genesis 7 verse 1, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. 
So make no mistake, Noah was righteous by grace through faith. His entire household benefited and even many animals benefited. Genesis 7-7 explains, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Verse 16 adds, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Now, why the emphasis on, on Noah? Well, he was God's chosen man, righteous and blameless, the head of his family, the one who received grace in order for, uh, for the rise of the one champion seed. God was preserving humanity, but God was also preserving a remnant to display his faithfulness to his covenant promises. Well, the flood came, and it drowned every person and animal on the earth. And you might wonder, as you hear a story like that, if God is loving and merciful and gracious and kind, how could he kill all those people and animals? This is a historic event. This is not just something like mythical. God killed these people. He killed the animals. How could that be? And I just want to encourage you to remember several things. Humanity broke God's covenant of works. They broke his law. Humanity was wicked and guilty. God warned of the penalty for breaking the covenant of works. Death. Death. The flood, as much as it might make us uncomfortable, is confirmation of God's holiness, of God's righteousness, of God's purity, of God's goodness, and humanity's wrath deserving sinfulness. And if we're honest with ourselves, we totally get this. We understand this. Last week, news broke of Raymond Charles Rowe and the murder of Christy Murak. A horrible story, but an incredible DNA discovery and and evidence. Would anyone argue that if Rowe is convicted of homicide, that he should get off without penalty? No. Nobody's going to argue that because something inside of us cries for justice. We know justice is right. We know justice is good. We want to see lawbreakers charged, convicted, and punished under the full extent of the law. Justice is really good. You know, ask the offended parties and their families. They yearn for justice. It's so sweet and good when it comes. The flood doesn't make God a monster. It displays His holiness and His justice and His goodness in opposition to the wickedness of humanity. Genesis 8. God remembered Noah and the animals. He didn't forget. God remembered His covenant promises. The flood, it subsided. The raven went. The dove went thrice. No one uses that word anymore, but I chose to. Thrice, Noah and the crew, they left the ark. Now, we're going to zero in on Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. What did Noah do after exiting the ark? He celebrated God's grace, and he expressed his gratitude by sacrificing a clean animal. Now, why a sacrifice? Gratitude. They just survived a cataclysmic event. Thank you, God, for that. That was amazing. But I think there's probably also a gospel connection to the atonement, the sin atonement. The Lord was pleased 
by the sacrifice, and he decreed this in his heart, verses 21 and 22. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God decreed to preserve the earth and never again strike down all living creatures. Why not? Well, it's interesting what the text says. Verse 21, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Total depravity hadn't changed. Noah just carried that right on in. It hadn't changed. Isn't that then reason for God to say, I'm going to wipe you all out again if this gets too nasty after Noah? Yes, but God would withhold. He would graciously and patiently withhold His righteous anger and He would preserve the earth so that the champion seed would rise and fulfill the covenant of grace. God patiently and mercifully and graciously put His justice on hold. Friends, His justice is still coming. Verse 22 is very important. God will preserve the earth. Farmers will plant. Farmers will harvest. This is good news. Uh, Seasons will change. The sun will sustain life on earth. Day and night, they will come and they will go. Why? God had covenant promises to keep. He's still keeping them. Sometime check out Jeremiah 33, verses 20 and 25. In those verses, God talks about his covenant with the day and night. A covenant which, in that context, ensures that the fulfillment of his covenant with David will actually be fulfilled. It's interesting. God is set on fulfilling his covenant promises. Now, Genesis 9, 1 through 7, ordering human life and society. Genesis 9, 1 should sound familiar to your ears. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's shown up before. Same thing in verse 7. God reiterated his sovereign plan for marriage and covenant families. Remember Genesis 1.28? Then in verses 2 and 4, God confirmed that animals would fear and dread humans. And God said, Into your hand they are delivered. God gave Noah and his household all the animals for food as well as green plants. God said, I give you everything. Isn't that great? I give you everything. In verse 4, God added, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Does all that sound familiar? It should. It sounds like Genesis 1, 28 and 29 with the addition of hunting and fishing. That's pretty cool. Any hunters and fishers? Come on. This is good stuff. The Bible is fun. God reiterated dominion. He reiterated meaningful work. He reiterated enjoying the earth. And there's even more. Verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's law prohibiting murder. The death penalty, I know it is a complex issue. People love to debate and argue about this. However, right here in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, God sanctioned the death penalty. 
Some may use the value of human life to argue against the death penalty. Here, God used it to sanction the death penalty. Human beings are made in God's image with intrinsic value, intrinsic meaning, therefore, murder warrants capital punishment. That's the argument that God is making here. And notice that even though man is sinful, this is so important to get, the image of God still remains. Ligon Duncan said, it was effaced, but not erased. I like that. Every person on planet Earth is an image bearer of God and has value, meaning, and purpose. Raymond Rowe, Isis, Putin, and everyone else on planet Earth is made in the image of God. Sin has not erased God's image from humanity. It has only effaced it. It has only eroded it. It has only veiled it. So then, the state or government is vital to this new world. In verses 1 through 7, God was ordering human life and society in the new world. Marriage, family, work, occupation, enjoyment, government. Noah parallels Adam and Eve except with sovereign grace in mind. It was, it was after the fall. It was after the Genesis 3.15. And this is not, for, for Noah, this is not just a, uh, the covenant of works again. Hey, Noah, now you have to live perfectly before God. No, it's after the fall. This is, this is God's common grace, which is connected to the covenant of grace. It's all post-fall, all post-sin. Brown and Keel helped me see these things in Genesis 8 and 9. They said this, quote, God ordered all of human life in the Noahic covenant. Fruitfulness covers the realm of marriage and family. Food encapsulates the realm of vocation and enjoyment of good things. Murder includes the arena of state and society, and natural law is evident in them all. Both Christians and non-Christians participate in all these fields and all of these arenas are necessary for preserving, preserving human society. They are founded on the Noahic covenant and are an important part of our lives as Christians in the world, end of quote. God's covenant with Noah was common grace through which society and culture are preserved and set the stage upon which the one offspring would come and perform his mighty works of redemption. Genesis 3.15, do not leave Genesis 3.15. We have to keep it in mind through all of Scripture. And the fact that God was making a covenant with Noah, which so much and strikingly ways is similar to Adam and Eve, only strengthens the argument that God was making a covenant with Adam and Eve from the very beginning. Now, Genesis 9.8-17. Listen to verses 8-11 through 11 closely. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, here are a few things to notice in those verses. Number one, God established the covenant with Noah, which suggests a previous covenant. Two, God included Noah's household in the covenant. 
His sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, and your offspring after you is a continuing theme in the Old and New Testament. Three, God included all living creatures in the covenant. Horses, dogs, cats, whitetails are all in the covenant. Four, God covenanted to never again cut off all flesh with a flood. And five, God covenanted to never again destroy the earth with a flood. The the earth had been decimated. A new beginning dawned. What was God doing? He was establishing a gracious covenant with Noah, Noah's household, and all living things. This common grace covenant, this is exciting, is in effect right now. God is not only a covenant-making God, He is a covenant-keeping God. And right now, we are benefiting from God's faithful covenant-keeping. The seed of redemption has come. And the earth continues, is upheld, will be sustained until He comes again. God is faithful. Borrowing from David Murray... There are good parallels between the flood event and salvation in Christ. We need to be careful how many, how, how, what we see as a parallel, but there are good parallels. God is holy, hates sin, and distributes justice in the flood as he is and does in the first and second coming of Christ. God provides sinners a way of escape in the ark as Christ provides sinners a way of escape in himself. God patiently and mercifully calls sinners to safety in the ark and calls to sinners to find safety in Christ alone. God rescued those who believed and who resided in the ark and God rescues those who trust in Christ and reside in him for safety from God's wrath. God purged the sin of the the earth of sin. He purged It of unrepentant sinners, saved sinners, he brought them into a new beginning, and baptism signifies and seals God's work of soul cleansing unto a new beginning. In the Noahic covenant, the conditions are for God alone. The, The responsibility is entirely his. All living things simply enjoy the benefits of God keeping the Noahic covenant. The covenant of works, that demanded perfect obedience of humanity. The covenant of grace, that demands faith of humanity. The Noahic covenant demands God to remember his covenant and to honor his promise. It's all on him. Now, let me ask you this question with tenderness. When you see a rainbow sticker or a rainbow uh, t-shirt, where does your mind go? Okay, Probably not the Noahic covenant. The rainbow, which God intended to signify and seal his glorious covenant promise, has been hijacked to represent something wicked. A sign declares and points to God's promise, and a seal, as your sinus put it, certifies and confirms God's promise. We could also say a seal assures of God's promise. Covenants have parties, they have conditions, promises, and signs, and the signs are given to those in the covenant. Signs are incredibly significant to covenant theology. Signs are not the covenant itself, but they visually represent the covenant, and as Brown and Keel note, maintain the covenant relationship. Ligon Duncan said, the prime function of all covenant signs is reassurance. The sign does not procure God's blessing, it confirms it. 
End of quote. Signs confirm God's covenant promises. This is an important sign. We have to get the rainbow right. Consider the the covenant sign in Genesis 9, 12 through 17. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Notice several things about those verses. Number one, God gave the rainbow as a sign of the common grace covenant he made with Noah, Noah's household, and all the earth. The covenant and the sign of the covenant are the centerpiece of the narrative. Two, The rainbow is a covenant sign of God's everlasting covenant for all future generations. The covenant remains. So does the sign of it. It's beautiful. Three, God put the rainbow in the sky and it reminds him of his covenant promise not to destroy the earth with another flood. God is not prone to forget his promises. Does he really need a reminder? But nonetheless, God put one in the the sky to remind him. And then when we see it, we're also reminded of it. Four, the rainbow reminds of the covenant God established with all flesh. No one negotiated this covenant with God. He set it up. He took the initiative to show mercy. He took the initiative to show common grace. Now, scholars will be on all sides of this, suggest various interpretations of the bow and what that means, but I favor one that likens it to a war bow that is drawn. But it isn't horizontal, it's vertical. And there's a reason why it's pointing up. Um, If God breaks his covenant promise, God has to die. That's not happening. So this is a sign that God absolutely will honor his promise The flood's not going to come again to destroy. I think that interpretation parallels what we see in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. We'll get there in a little bit with the idea of cutting a covenant when they actually uh, cut an animal in half, signifying death, to cut the covenant. The rainbow, then, is not to be misinterpreted, misused, or disdained. Instead, it should be interpreted, used, and enjoyed rightly as sweet assurance of God's faithfulness in fulfilling all of his covenants. That's how we should read it. I know, depending on context, you have to be very careful, but when we see a rainbow, a beautiful rainbow in the sky, our minds should just go right to, God is faithful. God will fulfill his covenant. God has made a promise that he intends to keep. It should be assurance for us who believe in his promises. God will preserve the seasons. God will preserve marriage. God will preserve childbirth. God will preserve law. God will preserve government and the blessings of it all until Christ returns, until the glorious king 
comes. As I said earlier in this series, God has a good plan. God is working out his good plan, and nothing can thwart God's good plan. We have a stunning and colorful display in the sky to remind us that God is sovereign. God is in control. God is sustaining the earth, and God is good. But you have to hear, there is an end to common grace. There is an end to common grace and its blessings. Now, a lot of this may actually seem like ivory tower theology to you. You might hear it and say, oh man, this is something that pastors like to think about or, or whatever, or theologians. Uh, but please, please don't miss the difference that this makes in your life. God is merciful and patient and kind to everyone to a certain extent to a certain extent he gives even unbelievers who hate him his incredible blessings in this life he provides sinners a way of escaping his judgment the ark corresponds to christ who is salvation shelter and safety from god's righteous judgment the gospel calls everyone to come in and live Christ is the safe haven for everyone who trusts and resides in him. God has given us the preaching of his word. He's given us the sacraments as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. The word and sacraments remind us of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. It doesn't remind us of something we've done. It reminds us of something He has done and the promises He has made to us. But God has also given us a beautiful rainbow in creation to remind us of the Noahic covenant, the common grace covenant that God made with all living creatures. Even creation, even general revelation, interpreted rightly in light of God's Word, reminds us of God's sovereign grace. We should be grateful. We should praise God that though we are sinful, though our world is sinful, God shows amazing patience and common grace in withholding his divine justice for a time and blessing us and unbelievers with wonderful things, money, food, drink, shelter, clothes, marriage, family, laws, the military. Thank you, Joe Gruber. We appreciate what you're doing. Police officers, vacations, and many, many more things. One day, God's Son will be glorified in the destruction of the wicked and all wickedness, and justice will prevail. Be grateful that's true. Be grateful that you are in Christ and will be rescued from a different kind of flood the torrent of God's justice. You are rescued if you are in Christ by faith. He is our shelter. He is our safe haven. He is our everything. So let me ask you the question, aren't you glad, aren't you grateful that you're safe in Christ and that your eternal pleasure is guaranteed in Him? Doesn't that make you happy? Thank you for Christ our safe haven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for this rich narrative of Noah and the great flood and the great covenant promise that you made to him and his household and all living, breathing creatures. 
Your destruction is not coming through a flood. We have that promise. We can enjoy 95-degree sweltering heat because you sustain the seasons. And we can enjoy the promise of snow and winter. It will come again uh, unless Jesus comes first. So, God, we, we really, really are grateful for the promises you give us, even the common grace promises. It's not going to save us, but it does say that even believers and, and, and even unbelievers can enjoy wonderful blessings in this life. There are wonderful things here to enjoy, and you've given it to us. We can eat bacon for the glory of God. Thank you. That is great. We can, we can take vacations. We can enjoy sunrises. We can go to the beach. God, there are so many things that we can enjoy that you've been kind to give us and you're sustaining all these things. You're withholding your justice. You're withholding your wrath. You are patient, God. You are kind. You are long-suffering. But the day will come when you will pour out your righteous indignation upon all wickedness and all evil and all those who do wickedness and evil. And you will save your elect. You will save your people. You will save, like Noah, those that you have chosen and given sovereign and electing and preserving grace. God, we will not be destroyed. No, we will be resurrected to new life in Christ. Everyone who believes in him in this life has great promises of saving grace that extend forever beyond death. That will be the beginning of an amazing existence in your presence, and I pray that we can see that, that we would not be satisfied with common grace, that we would not love the pleasures of this world so much that it snuffs out the excitement of saving grace that is offered in only Jesus Christ. I pray that saving grace is what we're after. We need to be saved from our sin and rescued to eternal pleasures in God, and I pray that that is our glorious aim and and goal of life to run the race well as to obtain the prize of knowing you, God, and your Son by your Spirit. Thank you for the Noahic covenant and common grace. And I pray, God, that we will see how it connects to your covenant of grace and saving grace, the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.